This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. This evening we'll hear about an innovative law firm focused on services for startups. They're called Law Squared. So you'll want to stay tuned for that if you're uh, either in the startup or the legal space and interested in disruption there. I'd love to welcome to studio Mr. Dan Salmon. Good evening. And Ms. Cassandra Wright. Hello. Thanks for joining me. I'm Vanessa Toholka and um, yeah, we are bite for the evening. I want to say a big thank you to all the listeners who've subscribed during Radiothon to date. Um, Radiothon is still open. You can pay up by 5pm on Wednesday the 20th of September and still be eligible for all the great prizes that are on offer and uh, the benefits that you get as a subscriber. Plus, we'll love you a little bit more if you do. We certainly will. There's plenty of love to go around. Uh, So in technology news tonight... There's a little bit of baseball action. What's been going on there, Cassie? There is. And I normally wouldn't describe myself as a sport aficionado or <laughs> no, anything in this area. You but, totally are. But I am a little bit of a movie nerd. And um, I think we've all developed our idea of iconic American culture by looking at things like baseball movies. Love baseball mm-hmm. movies. And an interesting thing about baseball, which may not be present in other sports that we witness, is, you know, you've got the classic catcher who's at the stop uh, doing different signs to the bowler or pitcher. Um, <laughs> Good save. If you're going to change that. To the pitcher to determine what type of style he's throwing the ball. Is it going to be a fastball yeah, or like a curveball? I'm trying a... to interpret it for, you know, non-sporty uncoordinates <laughs> like myself, right? We're all geeks here. Come on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's there's different signs and it's, it's always been done. So the um, they know how to catch it. And the thing is that because the, ca- the catch is doing it, person stepping up to the plate in order to hit the ball doesn't actually know what's going on. Now, there's plenty of ways this information has traditionally been re- relayed to give the the opposing team a little bit of extra knowledge. But recently, the Boston Red Sox have been accused of using an Apple Watch um, from a training staff member to actually record and then send information about what ball was actually being thrown. So so it, they can try and decipher They were trying the to decipher the signals, right? Yeah. So instead of the traditional way, which is see it, work out what it is and somehow transmit the information, you could actually just get the recording and somehow send it through. Now, the reason it's so interesting is because we're looking at ways that technology can change sports. And we've all seen, you know, instant replays and that type of stuff, but we haven't always seen teams themselves using a little bit of uh, creativity. And tech on the field. Yes, in order to have an advantage over their opponents. So I understand that smartphones have already been banned, which does make me laugh to imagine someone in a baseball uniform with a smartphone (laughs) secreted somewhere. you know, you got to Snapchat that perfect catch, <laughs> get that exclusive before the television networks get it. But um, it's almost, I think there's so much potential for what could happen in sports if this was implemented across the board. For example, should we be including more tech in our actual sports and kind of evening the playing field, so to speak, by having everyone recording signals and maybe even making a different way of transmitting information. You haven't got yeah. runners running around anymore. You've got coaches sending vibrations to the exactly. wrists of players mm. or something and, yeah, sending yeah. them off in different places on field. I mean, we've already got 
uh, traditional, well, not traditional, but we've already been recording players' heart rate, mm, um, speed, speed, blood pressure, all types of things as they move around the field to maximise their peak performance and potential. So why not take it one step further by actually using it in strategic ways? Yeah. I don't know. That, mm. that kind of caught my fancy. <laughs> it's a pretty great story. It is. Something that's not perhaps so great, depending on uh, what your opinion is, is um, the latest news coming out of Telstra. Um, they've recently um, rep- uh, published their annual sustainability report, which has revealed that um, Telstra have, revealed, have received 2,617 warrants for interception or access to stored communications during the year. Now, um, those of us who are, or those of you who are long-time listeners will know uh, we have a very low opinion of the government's mandatory data retention laws. Um, it's Interestingly, uh, in the last year, Telstra has, only, has received 65,715 requests for uh, metadata customer information, uh, which is actually down on the previous year. Uh, so there's not a huge amount of explanation as to why that would be the case. Um, the, the year before, they received over 80 or almost 83,000 requests. Um, Excuse me. Uh, as part of the retention scheme, obviously, we have to... Uh, well, well, telcos are now compelled to hold on to metadata for 20 f- or 12 months, um, and that is uh, accessible largely by law enforcement agencies, ostensibly to prevent uh, large-scale crime from happening, but uh, there have been reports uh, of, of lesser crimes or, or uh, mm. access to data for, for um, not those reasons, let's well, yeah, just say. Well, yeah, there have been lots of um, requests for data based on... Um, research into drug offences. Absolutely. Uh, also, a, a lot of the people, there's a there's a list of agencies who currently have access to the data, but there's a lot of agencies who are currently on the requesting permission to access uh, retained metadata. And, the and, they're, and, they're, and they're very, um, they're, they're kind of dubious, almost some of the, some of the, uh, some of the organisations that do some have access. Some of them access. you do wonder about, things like Greyhound Racing Associations and yeah. what have you. Mm, yeah. I mean, you'd like to think that maybe there's been fewer requests because people have gotten a little bit more informed about what they're actually looking for and and in an ideal world, maybe only the bad guys are the ones that are getting their privacy infiltrated, but... It could Who be a knows? variety it of could, things. It could be just the fact that maybe Telstra have less customers to, uh, to infiltrate now. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't know. Another interesting thing that has come out of this uh, yearly report is that uh, there were, and forgive me for looking up too quickly, 139 requests to implement DNS-based website blocking. So mm. uh, that's relating to... Uh, so supposed copyright infringement uh, issues. Anyone who is using a DNS to access uh, copyrighted material would uh, perhaps have their connections or their accounts suspended uh, at the request of uh, copyright holders. So that's mm. that's actually less than I thought there would be, to be perfectly honest, but yeah. I am happy, however, that uh, Telstra are releasing reports and, and keeping it transparent about how many requests for metadata they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to remember that the ISPs uh, were not in favour of this amendment, uh, and this data retention plan either. And um, we're certainly not sure how much it's costing. And if those costs are being extended to the general public, we imagine they are. Yeah, it's it's um, it's not a win-win for them either. No. In happier news, there is a new Nissan Leaf out. So, so for those who don't know, um, Nissan Leaf um, is a greener and battery-powered car design that comes from Nissan. Um, so they've been after months of speculation, um, have officially released the, or revealed the 2018 Nissan Leaf 
with its complete redesign. Mm. And they're hoping it will bring it up to speed with competitors to the Nissan Leaf, like the Chevy Bolt and the Tesla Model 3. So it's got a new 40 kilowatt per hour battery, which will provide 150 miles, apologies, this is an American article, of range, um, which uh, has actually been tested externally under the, the US Environmental Protection Authority. And they can also get 400 kilometres under the Japanese um, JC08 cycle. So that's a big improvement on the 107-mile range that they had in their previous model, which only had a 30-kilowatt-per-hour battery. Um, it doesn't match the Bolt and Model 3's respective EPA ratings um, by the US, so it'll be interested to see if our our own agencies um, rate these individually. I'm, I'm just relieved that the, um, the new Nissan Leaf looks like a conventional car. And I know that this is something that, this is something I've, I've, I've never really uh, understood is why green car or greener cars or electric powered or hybrid cars, uh, the, the people or automobile companies that design them seem intent on making them look weird and look like set apart from a traditional car. And I, I know that for me, I'm, I'm an aesthetically minded person. I would buy a car not purely based on its looks, but it would be a, a definite factor in it. And I, and I wonder whether the kind of interesting look of these cars might have uh, held people back from being interested in actually purchasing them. But on the other hand, I wonder if they design it in such a way to say, you know, because they think that their demographic wants to have that oh, point of difference. Look at me! You I'm know? driving an electric car. Like I've got my I've got my special bag that's sustainable, and you know I've got my clothes that are made from hemp and clearly look like they're made from hemp. And <laughs> so I've got my special car. Is what yeah. You're yeah, you know because while there are people that want to do their bit and that most of us in the world Absolutely. want to do our bit and not ruin the world for future generations mm. but want it to fit as nicely into our current lives as possible but there are a few of us that want to let everyone know that they are doing their bit. <laughs> so <laughs> let's, get, let's get back into what's different about this car. Um, one of the real big changes to the user experience is that there's a single pedal. Uh, so they've gotten what? away with the concept of the, the brake and the accelerator. It's just one pedal. They're calling it the E-pedal oh, uh, because it's the 90s. <laughs> <And> <laughs> At least they it's not the I-pedal. And they describe it as revolutionary. <laughs> it's a shame that they describe what, it that way. What does it do? Does so it, it handles, start? Does it stop? It handles the starting, the accelerating, decelerating and stopping. So releasing How? the pedal applies friction and regenerative brakes can bring the car to a total stop even on steep inclines. You would hope so. Yeah. I think it's interesting <laughs> that they add that. You're, 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 you're relying on doing nothing to stop the car? Is that what these... <laughs> that's, I don't know if I would, would be able to trust Look, a car I'm sure that. it's the same as getting used to back brakes on your bike. Yeah. We'd, we'd get used to it. Eventually. It's, um, and it's going for the same demographic, so... Of course. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We've just been joined in studio by our guest for the evening, Dimitri Ozima. He is the founder and director of Law Squared, an innovative legal practice focused on working with startups and entrepreneurs. Um, welcome to the studio, Dimitri. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. So you first got onto our radar when, um, when I attended a session that uh, the City of Melbourne were putting on as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week. Um, can you remind uh, us what that session was? Yeah, sure. So I, if I recall correctly, it was the uh, top five legal tips for entrepreneurs being held by um, at Gravity co-working space for the... Um, for the um, 
yeah, the small business uh, festival. Community. Community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought it was really interesting what you were doing because um, you're the head of of quite a young law firm. So you're under under two years old at the moment? Under two years old, 18 months at the moment. 18 months. Congratulations. Thank you. Still in in baby terms. Still in baby (laughs) terms. Yeah, absolutely. So in a market dominated by decades-old commercial law, law firms, which have often merged with international firms, could you tell us how Law Squared is disrupting the traditional ways of doing business in this field? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I suppose Law Squared was born out of my own experience of being a lawyer for seven years in kind of very traditional firms and very grateful for that opportunity. But I suppose I came out of a, uh, by being an entrepreneur myself, I really wanted to um, give other entrepreneurs an opportunity to work, you know, with other entrepreneurs. So it was kind of taking a very legal approach, but a commercial approach by saying, you know, there are lots of law firms offering different services, but no one was really focused and targeted at the entrepreneur community. Mm. And I felt there was really a gap there. And so um, taking away all those very old school traditional elements, um, you know, time recording, hierarchy, working in co-working spaces, you know, not dressing up in suits, not being at level 30 of a very high building, um, just allowed a kind of more genuine down-to-earth approach to legal services. And when you talk about, you know, changing the way that, that law firms do things, how do you actually use tech and and things like maybe not social media but different communication platforms to actually interact with your clients because i know a lot of entrepreneurs i've worked with are very time poor they want to send out quick sharp messages they sometimes don't even have time for a conversation are you there in those spaces to correspond with them yeah absolutely i mean there is always room to grow in tech and you guys know better than i do in terms of how fast that space is moving and all the different kind of platforms that we can use but you know we utilize slack for example kind of we sit on, I don't know that, but we sit on everyone's Slack channels. Most of our clients just invite us to their Slack channels and allows us to create a project or we'll use Asana with our clients and project manage that through them. So it's a very different approach where we try to be as open as transparent in our entire kind of working with our client and actually be on the ground with them. So it seems um, like quite a natural thing to target a market segment and say, great, we could, we could look at end-to-end services there. But how did you go about researching whether this was a viable business? Yeah, good question. Um, I suppose when I looked at the space of what we call new law, um, there weren't really many law firms in the space at the time. So having been an entrepreneur myself, this is my sixth business, I kind of was always looking for other law firms to support me outside of the firms that I was working in. And there really wasn't any other law firms. There was some, uh, mainly out of Sydney, but certainly none out of Melbourne that were kind of focused in this space. So I thought it's no harm in giving it a try. Yeah, we th- yeah. we think a lot about data driven insights with um with lots of tech driven startups these days. Yeah. Uh, did you do any surveying of, of potential um, customers out in the market? Yeah, we did quite a bit, and that was mainly through social media channels in terms of asking my own network to push it out and say, you know, is this a need? Is this something that people are after? And everyone's had a horror law story, unfortunately. You know, kind of whether they charge too much or they're inefficient or bad communicators or you know, just was always a combative experience. And so I got a lot of that kind of negativity and I was like, right, how do we take all these negative aspects and know all the good aspects of law that I have practiced for many years and how do we kind of make a business out of that? So when you're dealing with startups and entrepreneurs and um, working out the need for that, I can imagine that a lot of fledgling companies feel like, (laughs) 
they don't need law presence or they can't afford it or they only go for a lawyer when they get into trouble, when someone's accusing them of ripping off their IP IP. or or what have you (laughs) um, normally. Uh, What type of offerings do you have that make it accessible to these different ranges or is it only something that people get once they're a certain size? Yeah, so we're trying to change that conversation. You know, people always see lawyers as as a barrier, as a boundary and only come to us at the very last stage or when it's too late. So by being proactive, we offer a whole bunch of seminars or workshops or we do a series of law something and donuts. So we'll partner with an accounting firm or an insurance broker or a branding expert or a strategy um, business and kind of sit down and scope out kind of over an hour or two with any startup. And so we run these regularly, you know, throughout the week, you can follow our social medias and see what is coming up in terms of um, coming and having a consultation session. Out of that, it really allows us to break down, distill a business and say, right, what are you trying to achieve? Where are you going? How can we help you? And if we can't help you, then who can help you? We're very aware that there is a certain service level of our, of the market who we can't service. But if we can at least give them the tools to then go to either an, a law firm that provides some online services that we can't, that can utilise tech in a way that we can't, then that's fine. But so long as we're helping change that conversation around lawyers and the engagement that they have with entrepreneurs, and that's where the best value we can add. Cool. And um, so, I mean, obviously, a, a lot of the organisations that you're working with would be using an agile methodology when they're working within themselves. Yes. Is that something you've adopted with your own with your own firm? Team, yeah, indeed. I mean, we have a relatively young team, as you can probably imagine. I'm trying to focus on kind of lawyers with a large commercial acumen or those who have come from other non-legal backgrounds predominantly. And so with that comes a different mindset to not only provision of legal services, but also the way they work. So you know, the typical things of working from home or working from overseas or being flexible, whilst they're not unique, I think, to modern business, they are often unique to law firms. So, you know, we work in a paperless environment, for example, which is no rocket science to most businesses, but in a law firm, it's like, what do you mean? Paper is everything. So some of the stuff you've been saying, it's kind of the antithesis to what <laughs> we imagine lawyers are. Yeah, usually. And uh, I can assume that, you know, one of the oldest professions that's normally upheld as as being one of the the highest things to aspire to i can assume that there's been a little bit of pushback or not everyone's taken it in the in the warmest way for example you're sitting here not in a suit um you know a very different presentation from from what most lawyers are and some may perceive that as a threat or some may I, I'm not sure what reception yeah, you I mean, get. You're we not get some interesting them in the reception. <laughs> no, we get some good reception. We get some, um, you know, some negative feedback, unfortunately, and that's largely from the profession more so than anyone else. And that is because you know we see disruption as being rife and this whole new law label being pushed out every day on my LinkedIn or any form of social media quite broadly and browsely, but we still have some very key traditional players who feel like it's just not happening. For us, I think we're very clear about what it is we're trying to achieve and who we're trying to work with. You know, we're trying to work with other businesses who understand our ethos and we no doubt understand theirs. It's a very different approach to legal services. Mm. Um, You know, there are certain areas of the market that we can't service or nor do we want to, you know, those large multinational transactional cross-border deals that we just don't want to do and obviously it's not within our skill set to do. Um, that's not what we're trying to disrupt. But what we are trying to disrupt is those entrepreneurs, businesses who are growing and really want access to a lawyer and actually just have a normal conversation without the fears that we've already discussed. So to highlight that disruption, can you take us through, sorry to put you on the spot, no, no. but can you take us through an example of an issue where a traditional law firm would, the steps that they would take and then the steps that you would take and how you do that differently? Yeah, sure. I think it's the best probably example is from an advisory perspective. So often it's kind of 
a entrepreneur or a business owner would come with a problem and say like, you know, what are my options? And so a traditional lawyer would obviously look at the legal aspects only and say, this is what you're trying to achieve. You can do that because this is why you can't do that. And this is why you can't do that. It often doesn't take the next step, which is, okay, you're trying to achieve something in your commercial business. You might not be able to achieve this, but this is what you can achieve. Well, these are the steps you need to take to get there. It's just a different approach, I suppose, a more commercial approach. The other thing is, I suppose, my background as an entrepreneur, I have gone through the lost money, made money, raised capital, done all those things, which, you know, some other lawyers haven't. And sure, they've got 20, 30 years of office experience of sitting there advising, but they haven't necessarily gone through the trenches. And so I think that brings an entirely different approach to the provision of legal services. Yeah, I think having the the empathy for how your client feels is um, yeah. something essential to lawyers a- across business. And it's interesting to hear that you really feel like you can empathise with your clients. You offer a couple of service models. One is a more traditional fee for service. Um, it is still less traditional than the you know the big, yeah. yeah than the really <laughs> old law firms, but still some some firms are doing that these days. But interestingly, you also offer a range of membership packages. How did your service offerings evolve into these options? Yeah, so going back to the three problems that most people have around lawyers, and that is inefficiency, bad communicators, and expensive. And the first one that we want to remove is the expense. And so traditional time recording and time billing always just means that there is always uncertainty in costs. So we don't have any time recording internally, so that there are no monetary budgets for our team, which automatically changes the conversation. So traditionally, if someone's going to call up a lawyer, they're always concerned that, these 15 minutes on the phone is going to cost me X amount of dollars. So we eliminate that straight away, which gives our clients the flexibility and the freedom to just give us a call as and when needs. Our fee-for-service model, as you said, there are two. One is simple. It's an ad hoc service. So if you come in for a certain document, then that is what a fee is. And we put some parameters around what that might be. But our membership or our um, ongoing retainer models really allow a startup or a growing business to have certainty in their costs as well. So it could be a business that's starting off from scratch and they just need some of those initial incorporation documents. What we're able to do is give them either a fixed fee around that and then allow them to pay that over some time whilst getting some services uh, support ongoing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, Dan. Sorry. Uh, um, uh, you've got uh, offices in Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney. Have you observed any differences in the startup market in across the three cities? Yeah, they're completely different, um, both from, I suppose, the communities as well. So that the, we find the Melbourne and Brisbane communities are very similar in terms of the type of startups that are um, coming out of those cities, um, but also the way they engage and interact both with lawyers and each other. We find Sydney is a little different in terms of the way it works over there, but also there is a big push on fintech in Sydney. As you can appreciate, all your big banks are over there, all mm. your big VC firms are sitting in Sydney, and there are some fantastic things happening out of Sydney and a lot of money happening out of Sydney. <laughs> Certainly a lot more deals that we can see happening in Sydney than we do in Melbourne and Brisbane, but Brisbane is completely changing. The government up there is actually putting a whole lot of money through Advanced Queensland in supporting um, entrepreneurs and startups, and they've in fact just appointed a chief entrepreneur officer, um, which is fantastic for that ecosystem and Mm. really putting a lot of money there, which is allowing those um, to grow. And in Melbourne, you know, I think the ecosystem here has grown tremendously, even in the last 18 months that I've been heavily involved in it. You know, I think we started with 10 or 15 co-working spaces and we now have over 50. It's incredible. 
So, Dimitri, we're in the middle of hearing about um, how your firm has been disrupting the legal sector, but now I'd like to take the conversation a little bit more into um, some of your experiences with with startups and what's really unique about the legal problems that they have. Um, Could you take us through, you know, maybe uh, a common initial uh, gambit that a client comes to you with and maybe how you get them to rethink... um, yeah, the query and, and look at the bigger legal picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the, the probably two key ones is definitely around equity and capital raising and the, the lack of understanding, if you like, and just the so much enormous pressure that is placed on entrepreneurs and founders in terms of raising capital and having money. And the other certainly is around IP protection and trademarking and patents and one, what they mean, two, what the differences are, and three, how to protect them as best as possible. So if we start with the first one, which is around capital raising predominantly, we see just startups just giving away equity. So, you know, mm. if somebody helps them with a website, you can have 10%. If somebody helps <laughs> with a logo, you can have 5%. If, you know, mum and dad gave me $10,000, they can have 20%. And all of a sudden you've got founders who, you know, have a really great unique business model, but they've given away 50% of the equity without even trying. Um, and so we come to a position where they want to raise capital, but actually most of their equity has been lost. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've been able to work around some of those issues and reframing them and having conversations. And that's fine when you're dealing with family and friends. But I think sometimes when you have some experiences with startups, particularly who are going to developers and who aren't necessarily looking at the best interests, it's rather saying, oh, this is a great idea. We'd love to be a part of it. You know, we won't pay, um, you don't have to pay for our services, but we'll take it all in equity. That can have quite substantial impacts on the business, um, both from its initial growth phase, but also from an um, R&D perspective. When they later go down the track to apply for any R&D, then that can work against them by virtue of not having paid for that. So that's certainly a common issue we see on the capital raising growth stage and understanding how to split equity is always an issue. I suppose the second biggest issue we see is around intellectual property. So... What does it mean? How do you protect it? What can you protect? What can't you protect? And people are often confused. I was at an event the other day and um, this person came up to me and she said, oh, I've got this new business and it's really fantastic. And I was like, oh, that's great. I was like, what is it? She goes, oh, I can't tell you. I was like, why can't you tell me? She's like, oh, I haven't got my patent yet. And I was just like, what do you mean? I was like, what are you trying to patent? She's like, well, I can't tell you because then I'll be breaching the rules of the patent office. And I was like, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> and so just some education around that, for example, which you know, is actually more common than what people think around. You know, what's the difference? So a patent is something that's quite unique in the logarithm, something that's scientific and very identifiable that hasn't yet been done, as opposed to a trademark, which is something like a brand or a name or a design, something that is very unique to you. And Obviously, you want to be sure that you're not breaching anyone's intellectual property at any given time. And certainly, we're seeing a lot more IP infringement claims coming through at the moment and people getting more vigorous in that space. I guess it can be difficult for some entrepreneurs, especially if they're just starting out and they've got everything going, but perhaps they haven't locked down the legality of, yeah. of their idea. And then, you know, there's someone else who comes and then gets the rights to that without yeah. actually doing it. And I suppose you see some some fierce battles there. Yeah, first to market. It's whoever's going to get there first, who's got the best money and the best push and the best marketing is often going to make it. But what about uh, later on when you actually do want to scale the business? You've talked a little bit about the difficulties in... Um, giving away too much equity at the start, yeah. which comes back to bite you, almost like loan sharks coming <laughs> yeah. back and knocking on you. Uh, but what are what are some other ways that businesses can set up from the get-go so that they can scale later on? 
Yeah, I think just utilizing, there are so many, like I said, free services. So, you know, we offer so many office hours and I think people don't often value that they can just come and speak to a lawyer for an hour or they can go see an accountant for an hour and they go see an R&D specialist for an hour and really take the time early on in the business. Everyone's always focused on sales and marketing and how we get cash in the door, but no one necessarily focused on actually how we're going to protect and set up ourselves right from the beginning and not then worry about, well, let's just go see what happens and then once we've made it we'll then work out how to fix it it's often the hardest thing and then that's often where all the penalties come out of so startups often have a culture of um try things test you know pivot when we need to um is that culture compatible with um a a sensible kind of uh planned out legal approach to scaling up a business yeah it can be if they're protecting themselves early on from the beginning so we always say to people, whenever you've started a business or have an idea, like incorporate that as quickly as possible. Keep all the IP within a very clear entity and try to remove yourself from that. So play your role as the director and as a shareholder in that, but don't necessarily keep yourself as an ABN or as a sole trader just because you feel like, well, I don't want to spend $500 to you know, incorporate a company when I don't know if this is going to happen. That's fine, but then something might happen and then all of a sudden all your personal liabilities and your personal exposure is quite mm-hmm. high. So with your experience, you've actually gone uh, as a lawyer and as an entrepreneur Mm. yourself. Uh, You talked a little bit about how you've been through the fire. You've um, made money, lost money. And even though you're you're giving advice, it's, you know, the losing money thing. It's it's something that can happen to anyone. There's no completely fail safe way to get rich quick. uh, No, there definitely isn't. Absolutely. And I've, you know, definitely learned through that experience that kind of having a passion project is key. You know, if I look at my other businesses and why they didn't necessarily work, I can tell you that I was never passionate about them. For me, it was always starting a business to unfortunately get me out of law. I liked being a lawyer, didn't like the environment that I was in. I knew there was better money to be made. So it was always like, right, this is a good business idea. It doesn't exist. Let's give it a try and let's make some money to get out. And I've certainly learned... (laughs) couple of times in the hard way that actually being really passionate about something that you're trying to create can really make the world a difference. Dimitri, um, in the law, there's often a lot of checklists that people go through to get to get uh, procedures done. For example, if people are going to an IPO, initial public offering, they yeah. might do it, have a due diligence checklist specific to getting that task done. Are there um, equivalent sort of checklists that you like to think of when you're looking at startups in particular? Yeah, so, I mean, there are always these five, you know, that I always run through, which are around kind of your incorporation first, so your structure, why you're structuring that way, what are you trying to achieve out of that? Um, And then, you know, the biggest one always is around contracts. So people just think that a one page or a couple of emails between a couple of businesses or a couple of people is enough and sufficient. And so we've definitely built some tools around those kind of contractual, you know, what you should be looking for. If you don't want to engage a lawyer for whatever reason, be it financial constraints, but at least having something to go, right, what does these clauses mean? You know, see an indemnity clause um, that you've signed on to, like, what does that mean? Unless you have any form of legal background, do some Googling, then you'll quickly work it out. But often people will just sign away and, yep, it's a deal and that's important. Um, And they're certainly some of the things that we like to look at. Um, so there's a really interesting space in startups where, around HR, where I think that most startups I chat to for a long time don't have an HR representative and that's completely understandable. Yeah. But it also means that sometimes you ask them how they've bootstrapped something and they can't really tell you how much t- uh, how much someone's employed by their business. Is this something you see a lot? Yeah, we see it a lot. And we've also been seeing a lot of people or a lot of startups who have been offering their employees to just essentially work for nothing but work for equity. 
it's got you know a big red tape marked all over it. it's only something that i don't recommend at all but we're seeing a lot of that because like you said people are bootstrapping and they just want to make it work and their friends are excited and people are leaving their job because they see you know something huge is going to be the next unicorn which is fantastic but at the same time you need to be compliant with all the laws and so we're so lucky. what are the risks that you see there for an for uh you know a founder. Yeah, so largely tax implications are, you know, ginormous. You have some capital gains implications, which are even larger, often for the employee, more so than the employer. And then as a result of that, it comes back. Um, you then have issues if someone injures themselves. You know, you don't have the right insurance over them. If you're not paying them, then there is no work cover insurance. And work cover is obviously mandatory for very valid reasons. And that's critical. Um, don't forget, we then have superannuation, your PAYG, often, you know, minimum wage. Um all these things that we have in this country that people have fought for years to obtain, and yet we have, uh, unfortunately, a bit of a culture where we're trying to avoid some of that just to save some money. So are there any areas where um, startups are in a different legal uh, situation than other businesses because of changes that they've lobbied for from the government in terms of you know trying to generate um, a more healthy environment for startups? I think more so in the incentive space, um, but not otherwise in terms of all your other obligations. People often feel, oh, we're a startup, it's okay. It's like, nope, Corporations Act applies to you as it does to an ASX listed director. They're like, no, it's not possible. It's like, nope, absolutely. Um, so that's pretty important. And I suppose um, when we look at some of those uh, risks that people have, um, they really need to understand them. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone? Because I'm sure that there are people listening who think, Oh, no. <laughs> no. What have I done? Um, yeah, and I, I guess that there can be the percep- perception, especially if you haven't worked with lawyers before, that, yeah. all right, I'm in too deep into this now. If I come clean about it, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So I might as well just keep going, keep yeah. my head down. I'm sure that's not the way, no. but uh, what would you say? I would say confess before. <laughs> 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 come and do a confessional first and let's work out how to fix that. And it, again, there are many law firms just like us who now exist for this purpose. And I would certainly recommend that people reach out, whether it's to us or into any of those other law firms. Just spend an hour and kind of understand what your options might be. You might do something with that, you might not, but it's better than kind of the unknown and the fear that you might have. That's really great. I've got one last slightly silly question. No Shark Tank. Shark Would you tank. recommend it to your startups or oh, not? Oh, it's such a scary place to be. Um, For is- those who don't know, like, <laughs> I hope that everyone knows what Shark Tank is. Just I, do a straw I, I poll in the room. two and a half minutes of it last night and then turned it off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's where people go and pitch to potential investors their business idea and usually give up a fair bit of equity in equity. exchange for that. Yeah, that's right. I would say go do some local Shark Tank equivalents before you kind of apply for the uh, online, the TV version. So, you know, there are many pitch nights that we have, you know, particularly here in Melbourne, there are organisations such as Startup Victoria or Launch Vic who, uh, through Launch Vic, who run many startups, uh, sorry, startup pitch nights and uh, definitely, you know, dip your toes into some of them. Most of your co-working spaces hold a bunch of pitch nights. It's a much better place to start um, before you then want to head on to a television show. I just had to get in uh, my free legal advice for <laughs> tech entrepreneurs. So uh, this is not actual legal advice. <laughs> Warning. Yeah, my disclaimer no, is like, this, is, yeah, this is an asterisk. Yeah. Um, my question, sure. if you do deem to answer it, those warnings at the bottom of emails, disclaimer, this is only <laughs> intended for the addressed recipient. If you have received this message in error, please delete it. Or <laughs> yeah. uh, 
do they actually hold up or can we just get rid of them? We can just get rid of them. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, we certainly don't have them at the bottom of our emails. And <laughs> I think if you're not the intended recipient and you can recall that anyway, if it's very obvious that it's not for you, if it's marked without prejudice, if it's marked privileged and confidential, you know, all those things are sufficient enough to kind of protect a business. Um, having all these disclaimers don't necessarily move people away from their own obligations. And you certainly can't avoid any negligence by doing that. And let's also think about our basic ethical obligations. Yeah, if we receive something that's not, not um, yeah, d- meant to be delivered to just us, I think it. we should just get rid of it. That's, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm just excited that my <laughs> inbox no longer needs to be filled with, uh, <laughs> with footers. But Cassie, we need that notice that says, please consider the environment. The environment. Yeah, yeah don't forget the tree. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dimitrio, it's been such a pleasure to hear a bit of your uh, experience with Law Squared and your insights into the startup community are quite deep. So uh, we really thank you for your time this yeah, evening. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's been great. So has China come up with real competition to Tesla's Hyperloop technology? Well, China says so. <laughs> so uh, it must be true. In the in the short answer. But um, yeah, so China's announced that, or the People's Republic of China, rather, uh, has announced plans to take on the Hyperloop, which unless you've had your head under a rock, you've probably heard about Elon Musk's fantastic idea to uh, build a vacuum tube transport system from the US to Indonesia. Uh, now... China's getting in on that and in what it refers to being a flying train. Uh, So the China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation is working on a transit system that's not like a conventional train, but could travel up to 4,000 kilometres per hour, right? Wow. (laughs) I'm not even lying. That's not a typo. Actual... 4,000. You, you might not be lying, but I feel like someone is. Well, Hyperloop promises 1,200 kilometres per hour. So that's barely subsonic, you know. Uh, <laughs> Sub- it's so 2016. Yeah, you know. Uh, but so the, the concept that they're talking about, it's a maglev train in a vacuum tube. Um, so it's borrowing... So far the same. Yeah. Yep. So it borrows concepts from Hyperloop, bullet trains and supersonic flight, according to the South China Morning Post. And there's no timeline. So it's not, you know, by the end of the year or by 2018. <laughs> it's, it's just vaporware. It's we're just we're doing it. We're like, we're doing it now. But, all right, to be fair, China's done some... Um, They've, they've already done some pretty cool things with transport. So they do have the, a bullet train at the moment. Which they built like an entire nationwide network in 10 years or something yeah. like that. Was It's unbelievable the amount of um, innovation and speed at which China is, or the, the People's Republic of China is um, building this infrastructure. Guys, and I think we can say China. It's yeah, we can say China. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's I mean, it, what what you can do with, with a population of almost 2 billion people. Exactly. Yeah. Well, their bullet train at the moment is 483 kilometres per hour. Oh, they're one third of the way or one tenth of the way there. Yeah, one tenth of the way there. But, um, <laughs> but and then people are like, is it safe? You know, but that, seems, that seems really intense. But um, they've, they've said that the vehicle's acceleration speed will be slower than a plane in taking off. So, But it'll be accelerating for 40 minutes. Yes, <laughs> but, it, but it will get to 4,000 And then start slowing down again. But I guess, you know, when you're... That's dri- probably good for comfort levels. Humans are inside this thing. Yeah, yeah true. Like, you know, when you're driving mm-hmm. and you're at 100k per hour mm-hmm. and then you have to go 80 and you're like, oh, this is slow. But if you're at 40 and you have to go 20, you're like, oh, this is slow. So it's all relative. Yeah. Are we getting into special relativity here? Is that what's I happening? guess, no, because isn't it that humans can't comprehend going faster than a run anyway? So it's all the same. No, this is... <laughs> true but I'm, I'm i'm interested in the idea of four thousand kilometers an hour because it does mean that if if it's almost like the acceleration would be so 
long that in order to go the 4,000 kilometres, it would be you'd like you'd, be you'd never get to the speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, you'd need to be going from Beijing to London in order to be but able to reaching those. China's kinds of pretty big. <laughs> Like, not gonna lie, it's it's a big mass of land. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And they could be building it to go internationally. Well, I know. imagine they would have to. They, <laughs> they didn't say not. You know, it's it's um, Elon Musk wants to go internationally. Elon so Musk if, wants to own the world. Yeah, so the numbers are, are pretty astronomical, and I guess the problem with this article is massive understatement. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is where we're, we're hitting up against it. Uh, look, that's that's pretty exciting. Um, I'll when, write it. Yeah. When China um, put forward their land air buses, those um, buses that straddled a couple of lanes of traffic... They were cool. ..the biggest challenges they had were to do with whether companies behind the buses were using the idea to raise money illegally. So, corruption. Oh. So, I guess uh, that's interesting that uh, corruption might be the biggest threat to this rather than uh, regulation of our (laughs) our transport systems or anything. I do like the quote by a Beijing Transport University professor, Zhao Jian, I think, um, who said... uh, ..because of the acceleration speeds, are the passengers going to be astronauts only? I don't know. I feel like they'd need to go up into the air to be astronauts. No, but have to go through that grueling oh, training, training and stuff. But no, that would only be for the G. If they're accelerating it at, um, you know, G-force speed, yeah. but we're talking about it being less than a plane, then it shouldn't be an issue. Well, you know, let's see. Who knows? Let's do both and see what happens. Por no que los dos. <laughs> Exciting times and very multicultural. Uh, RMIT has established a research centre focused on the social science of blockchain. This is really um, a fascinating initiative from local uh, university because most of the research areas in universities that we're seeing into blockchain are really looking at the technology at the moment. And it's so important to be looking at the uses of technologies, especially ones like this, which make us radically rethink trust. Mm. Um, so they've got a real ethical component. Um, yeah, there's there's great examples of blockchain being used to run governments and social services within Estonia. Uh, they're usually the case study that's that's raised. Mm. Uh, yeah, no, well, Estonia is so far ahead in most of these kinds of things. They're, they're generally a pretty good uh, benchmark or case study for, for yeah. sort of, you know, five years hence. The RMIT has, um, has touted this particular innovation hub as the world's first research centre focused on the social science part of blockchain. Uh, so blockchain technology is the underlying system that facilitates Bitcoin trading, and most people know it from that and from other uh, e-currencies. But it is becoming a core infrastructure for the global economy, and it has uh, particularly uh, legal applications in terms of letting people uh, have trusted signing of documents. That can be one thing they use it for. Also, um, in in the Estonian case, letting citizens um, own their own data and retract and give permission for other government service bodies to access their data on an as-needs basis. So it really puts the power in the hands of the individual and it's kind of hard to wrap your hands around that when we're so used to our data heading off into government services and then it's it's very uh, opaque to us what's happening with that and we certainly have trouble retracting any of that. Forgive me if I'm wrong with this, Vanessa, but... Um I, oh, from my perception has been that normally when looking into the social science aspect of technology, it's kind of done retrospectively mm. where you look at, okay, so how did the introduction of 
personal computing change our lives and how did the introduction of smartphones change things? So it's it's really interesting that a university so close to home yeah. is doing it while we are being affected by it in Australia. And while the technology yeah. is still emerging. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of uptake at least, if not in terms of the, the technology itself changing tremendously. Uh, yeah, it's really it's really fascinating. Um, researchers at the University of Sydney in parallel uh, have announced that they are building a new blockchain technology dubbed the Red Belly blockchain that they think has the potential to revolutionise the global economy. I mean, there's a lot of hype around blockchain that is... Um, that we're keen to avoid. Mm, yeah, and, and a lot of interest in Bitcoin in particular, considering the uh, the drop in value of Bitcoin over the last 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I suppose we've, any, anything that increases our uh, security in the online space can, can only be a good thing, surely. Mm, and our understanding. Shall we get to Weird News of the Week? We shall. It's our favourite segment. It is, Cassie. Let, let, let's talk Snapchat. Come on, hit me with it. Well... I, I, you, you might need to hit me with it because I'm uh, I'm struggling to actually read okay. the article right now. So uh, we do have news from the world of teenagers this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember when we were teenagers, Cassie. Oh, my God. I didn't have Snapchat when I was a teenager. That's how old I am. Uh, so there's basically been an announcement of 18-year-old uh, Emma Young has revolutionised the way that we can use Snapchat by... Again. By, again, by the use of custom stickers. So for the uninitiated of us, right, custom stickers are one of my favourite things because <laughs> what you actually do is take a photo and then use like a scissor tool to cut out around it and then you can use that as a sticker on other things. So think of, you know, how you can put emojis or pictures on top of the picture you've taken. Oh, you can put your own face on a photo of your own face. Yes, I do that all the time. So I could cut out Dan's face and put it on a on Vanessa's body and be like, ha-ha, new Snapchat. Frankensnap. Yeah, but... <laughs> What she's actually done is gone to the nail salon, taken a photo of uh, a range of nail colours, and you know how they're already on the nails? Mm -hmm. And then used that to make a custom sticker, which she's put onto her own hand to see how the manicure is going to look with her skin tone and um, oh. put it into perspective. So it's like the opening scene from Clueless where, like, Alicia Silverstone is, like, wearing the, the dress and she's, and like, going through the computer and polaroiding yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> so what and for those of you who have been in a salon getting a getting a manicure if you're not really experienced with it and you're like me and just doing it ad hoc when they ask what color you want it's normally like um, that one but this is if you want to be a little bit more prepared and say oh you know what that orange will complement my tones and uh actually get right into it but really with what you're saying why not go to a department store, right? Why try on the clothes when you can take a photo of it, make it a sticker and then put it on your body? I, th I think you've just solved every world problem. We, <laughs> we should put you in a room with Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and get it and we can work it out with that. Well, if I could custom stickers them onto each other, maybe everything would be fine. I think so. Um, but, yeah, so teen Twitter is going crazy with it about the... Uh, the life hack. So it's something us uh, old folk can learn from from the future generation and, and implement that into our own lives. So you're at the very last bit. We'd love to say a big thank you to our guest, Demetrio Zima, for uh, speaking to us about Law Squared and law firms servicing the startup community. It's been great having you listen tonight. Thanks, Cassie, and thanks, Dan, for being here with me. Thank and you. thanks, listeners. Stay tuned for Anthony Carew with the International Pop Underground up next.
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.